like to reflect that often what we take as, as you know, ideas or psychologies and thoughts um, have almost like a certain, I say, physical but an energetic quality to them. They, they are uh, in the Buddhist classical way of seeing things they're actually formative energies that, that manifest, they're not just ideas, they have a certain um, almost somatic quality to them and this is the key to uh, um, jhana, meditation where these qualities begin to collect in the body and you experience um, qualities such as rapture, a certain thrill, thrilled experience which is somatic flushing uh, experience. So this is still understood to be the case that these um, what we might call as th- thoughts or ideas or virtues which perhaps to us are rather abstract and I think perhaps for a Buddhist they seem to be rather bleached as if we'd taken some of the the juice out of them because <laughs> they uh, even though they can be accurately defined and often um, critically defined in terms of sila, like you know, like measuring it, or, or dana, measuring it, how much and how good and how worthwhile, like measuring it from the outside, if you see what I mean, or measuring it according to some abstract standard. Whereas my understanding, my sense in the Buddha Dharma is these are actually felt experiences. That's why they're effective, because they begin to capture, literally, rapture is to capture. They seize or they take hold of, of the mental inclinations, so that mental inclinations are no longer just zigzagging, but through sense contact or through memory, they're actually held and directed into something fruitful. And that's, that's, the, um, that's, the, that's the understanding of these qualities they can be heightened to the, to this effect and so this is why you know the, the uh, in this case they'd often have um, you know summoners and recluses living around the cities acting like a psychic force field <laughs> keeping the bad stuff away <laughs> you know the rishis and that understanding is still still the case you know in the uh, you know, if you get some great Ajahn in Thailand, then you, know, you just go and live near his monastery, you're going to get some good stuff happening. He's going to keep the bad things away. Uh, palang, they call it. Palang. Means he's got a lot of... as palang means strength. You can sort of sit around in it and you'll just get a hit of it. And that can be enhanced to the level of psychic power. Which, again, we kind of either don't want to go there or, or dismiss it or, you know, but, but that's, that's the understanding of it. Because, partly because this, um, this is how you can get out of uh, negative karma. You imagine everything, you know, when we've been uninstructed or badly instructed or confused, we have engaged in various kinds of actions that with hindsight we saw were not so helpful, not so good. But they've established particular tracts and patterns 
in our minds. And our minds tend to easily go down those because the more you enact it, that's the path your mind goes down. And you can try to argue your way out of it. You can try to justify yourself. You can try to blame yourself and to get out of it, but it doesn't work. Um, what is necessary is this particular charge of something that almost jolts or lifts your mind, your mind out of that rut into another um, sphere, another um, track, and it's tr the track that moves onwards. So as you get into this particular, it's called a stream or a flow of Dhamma, then your mind is beginning to pull that away rather than going to these negative defeats, this self-sabotaging, you know, qualities that people experience and are frustrated by, you know, self-criticism, guilt, regret, you know, always, whatever, whenever you, you know, you judge yourself, the verdict is always going to be guilty. There is no, <laughs> because the very mechanism cannot do anything but that. Uh, so this is why you have to kind of continually put enough positive input in and recognize, yeah, that at a sort of fairly weak level, just to almost obsess yourself, you know, uh, to jam the signals, the negative signals. And that's at a fairly weak level. But if that is strengthened recollection and meditation, that builds up a certain, you know, power. Uh, the mind is not just a theory, it's a substance. And that substance builds up a certain power to push or to ward off or to resist um, unskillful. Mm. Yeah. So that's, that's the understanding of it. Um, and if we look at, very simply, you know, the, the, what is it, one of the texts we have here on was the second one actually we just down on to the second one um, which is to do with just look at the process uh, for one who is virtuous fully endowed with virtue there's no need to set up the intention may freedom from remorse arise in me because this is the way it is, or it is natural. The phrase here is dhammata. Uh, in one who is virtuous, who is fully endowed with virtue, freedom from remorse arises. Mm. Now, what it doesn't say is for bhikkhus, for one who behaves themselves, who gets it right all the time, is absolutely perfect. <laughs> It's an interior experience of fully endowed. You know, get it? This is not objective arithmetic. This is a sense of, it's built up some, some power in there. And when you look at the standard of virtue, it's not that high. But the point is you, you endow yourself with it. You keep going back to it, re refreshing yourself, enacting it, remembering it, recollecting it, taking it in, and, and realizing why. Are you just doing it because you're frightened of getting it wrong? 
you're just doing it because somebody says you have to, or do you do it because something in you feels a delight, an ease, a freedom, a beauty, uh, a defenselessness, a need, you know, a not needing to defend oneself, a feeling of respect for others, self-respect. Those are the, those are the measures to get into. That, that's the thing to detect. Not what, whether somebody else might, but detect that quality. This is a much more useful um, reference point for virtue rather than, you know, some of these moral paradigms like uh, what do you do if you get a whole, you know, your dog's got fleas? No, no, you know. <laughs> Chant over it. Talk to the tr flea diver, Lord, Lord of the fleas, and say, please, could you go somewhere else? Or, you know, tell the dog to be patient with the fleas. Yeah. I don't know what you do, but um, you know, most of the time you just build up in what you can be clear about, and use that, and and you know, because in a way, some of these things are get very, are rather difficult. Yeah. Either way, you don't feel entirely comfortable, but unless you get a sense of, from the fullness of my, my harmlessness, what do I do now? What does that tell me to do? So this is part of it, and so this, in a way what's happening here in this particular sequence, this phrase dhammata, the dhamma. So here again we have, what does dhamma mean? Is it the teachings? Well here it seems to be something more like, a, a, like the law of nature. Uh, and this is certainly one of the meanings of dhamma. It is, we might say, the moral order of the cosmos. And the moral order of the cosmos, not just in terms of somebody who's saying it's right or wrong, but everything starts to act in harmony yeah, around this. And this is, uh, again, a, 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 an understanding in, in India and perhaps in Buddhist understanding in general. Um, the cosmos is made a cosmos rather than chaos through the principle of its order and it's not law and order from some policing or God but an order that is the order of harmony, mutual respect, proper observance, ritual even, uh, um, sacrifice in this context. This is why kings do sacrifice and it's their job to be the person who presides over the proper order of the society. And then if he does that, the sense is that the, you know, that order, orderly, the principal order will bring around benefits, fertility, rain, and so forth. And if they don't, it's the opposite. And as you see in a later, um, one of these later references, um, saying where the kings or the leaders of the country, of the society are unrighteous, and misbehave, then it doesn't rain. <laughs> and the crops dry up, and it's difficult to get food. So, if they are righteous, everything, and I haven't included all the references, but basically in these um, 
in these texts, it goes through the whole list of, you know, the, 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 the various hierarchies within the cosmos that get bothered and upset and disappointed or can't operate because, and the essence of it is ethical. You, you know, human beings are the ones who can make ethical decisions and we have the greatest possibility for that. Other creatures have much less. They can just look after their young or whatever. But now we have the ability to extend our awareness, you know, in much more refined ways. Uh, and then it's up to us to maintain the ethical compass. And of, of all of us, it's the leaders who should be setting the examples. Oh dear. So we start to, um, yeah, recognize, well, what kind of, what's your society, you know, and you say, well, you know, I don't think it's going to be the nation state exactly. It's going to be something that's more grassroots. <laughs> yeah. But this all principle order, Dhamma, then um, has this, you say, it's an external um, um, attribute. And of course, it has the internal attribute. Your own house is kept in order. And you, you stay in that and it's got a certain, you stay with that and reflect upon it and keep this bhavana principle of deeping into it, taking it in, dwelling upon it, feeling what happens in your body with that and in the embodied domain with that. And this is, this is the particular piece that can be missing for people. So you know you, your body is part of the part of the, the dhamma, not just the ideas in the mind, but the body, um, the somatic, emotive body, the body that feels fear and joy, the body that feels um, saddened and uplifted, that that resonance in your chest or in your belly or in your face, that body that you still detect. And I would say that. Um, this is one of our difficulties because we, by and large, are significantly disembodied compared with, apparently compared with those, these people in, in the suttas. Because we live in a very, we live in a literary world, um, words, ideas, books, screens, and so forth. So that takes us out. We live in a world of um, abstractions, principles, laws, and the embodied sense is not given much. You basically, your body is just the, the meat bag that you carry your brain around in. <laughs> Do a few things, but often things like sports or whatever keep it fit, but it doesn't really have a, uh, like a moral intelligence. And, uh, you know, and that, if we don't really know that, you can get yourself into deep trouble. You don't realize your moral actions will actually see, you know, cripple your body. It will seize you up. You know, and people become hard and locked down. And then they lose that. And then this is very dangerous. So this is where the, we see, we notice to our surprise how somebody hears this talk and, and you listen to it, you know, well, yeah, that's good. And boom, they're dropping into jhana and you're sitting there. Where do they go? How do they do that? (laughs) 
because you know when these things can be taken in on this somatic level you drop beneath the thought as an energetic potency that's there that begins to firm up and your mind goes quiet the thinking quietens down and you you, dip, you dive in you can dip into that and so you know when the buddha encourages people in this way to cultivate virtues of various kinds he very firmly asks them you know get it for yourself get the results of this it's not it's altruistic but it's holistic it's it's for your own welfare absolutely there's a lovely reading here which i brought on this wonderful piece of screen the life of the buddha where Visaka, who's a great one of the great supporters, she built a monastery in Sawati where the Buddha would stay and, and people would stay. So one day she sort of invites people the so says she's got a, a servant girl. She says, Go and go to the go out to the park where the, the, the monks are living and go and invite them invite them for a meal. So she goes out to the park and it's raining, you see. So that day, the monks, they just had this, you know, a couple of robes. So it was raining, so they took their clothes off, their robes off, and standing out in the rain, letting the rain wash their bodies. They didn't have showers, you see, so that was it. So a servant girl goes to this park and sees all these naked men standing around, and she goes, ooh. So she writes, I couldn't see any bhikkhus, just some naked ascetics. And so it's like, oh, stupid girl. She, obviously, they were just having a wash, you know. But she notes this, and she notes a few other things, and um, she takes notes and thinks, this isn't proper, you know. So she asks the Buddha, there's a few things she takes umbrage to. One is that the bhikkhunis also don't have proper robes when they go bathing, you know. So they're supposed to have bathing, they didn't have them. So they have to go to the stream, the river, and go naked. And and then the, the prostitutes are down there and they're laughing at them for, being, for, ch- for their chastity. So she finds this disgusting. So anyway, she decides she wants to, she asks the Buddha, can I, can I, have, can I do a favor? And the Buddha looks and says, perfect ones have left favors behind, Visaka. I mean, you know, we don't do deals. It's great. So these are permissible, Lord and blameless, then tell them, Visaka. So she says, I'd like to provide the sangha with rain's cloth. So in other words, you can go out in the rain and, you know, be decent, having washing in the rain. So, and also I'd like to provide food for visiting bhikkhus, food for setting out on a journey, food for the sick, food for sick attendants, medicine, constant supply of gruel, which you may not think is that good an idea. But in those days, this was, yeah. And also, I'd want to do the same thing for the Sangha and the Sangha bhikkhunis, also give them bathing cloths. So she says, why do you think, he says, what benefits do you see in this? So she says, well, you know, I mean, I want to look after these people in various ways. And whenever I see one of these people, I'll realize, yeah, you know, I've given them gruel and that makes me happy. And he's, so, she's, so she goes through this, all this stuff about the objective reasons, like if a sick bhikkhu, he can't go wandering because he's too sick, so I want to provide food for him. So objective reasons. And still, the, 
Buddha's listening, and then he's so then he says, "Okay, so what benefits do you see for yourself?" And he said, "Well, when I remember it, I shall be glad. When I'm glad, I shall be happy. When my mind is happy, my body will be tranquil. When my body is tranquil, I shall feel pleasure." When I feel pleasure, my mind will become concentrated. That will maintain the spiritual faculties in being in me and also the spiritual powers and also the enlightenment factors. This Lord is the benefit I foresee for myself in asking the eight favors. And then he says, good, good. You know, so, of course, you know, they use glad generally is pomoja. There are slightly different phrases, pomoja, glad. It's to do with this um, mudati, mudita, and amodana, all have this quality of a certain rejoicing sense. Happy, probably this happy might be in this sense a pity, rapture, or sukha, an uplifted, comfortable feeling. Tranquil, we feel satisfied. The mind feels steady. Therefore, in that state, spiritual faculties arise, because the mind has gone quiet and comfortable, and then is naturally spiritual faculties will arise within that. You know, so this is the dhammata. Um, they arise by themselves, and because of that, and that sitting within that, one mind dips in and is unified. And this is the. Um, potential for absorbing uh, goodness. So it's very much um, almost a somatic juice or somatic energy which is associated with a particular kind of feeling. It feels, it feels pleasant. Uh, It saturates the bodily domain and it grips the mind and and calms it so you get the deepening experience so the mind is not jumping off jolting it's steadied and held and almost plunged into a particular medium of subtle uh, pleasure that's the jhana thing I think this is an interesting point to consider um, because primarily people very much uh, localize jhana or or say, well, you know, it's something that you'd get after certain points in your meditation practice. It's acquired through focusing on breathing in and out, and I'm certain that's the case too. But the whole principle of, it's called jayati, to absorb, is a foundational principle in cultivation. And in this particular sequence, we're absorbing the very potencies and energies of, one of a better word, virtue. And as you look in the, the sec- sequence of this second uh, extract, 
free from remorse, that is you've come out of the groove or the track or the rut of regret, guilt, doubt, self-criticism, all these toxic things that we can experience, that your mind is lifted out of that and therefore the freedom from that causes gladness to arise. So the freedom from the negative allows something feels refreshed. Why, you know, the fundamental principle of virtue is refrain from the negative. That's the foundation principle, not be as good as you can, which is one way of putting it. But then once you do that, you know where that's going to go. Who's perfect? Who's got it? Freedom from, you know, what that is, mm, to free oneself from that, that tape loop, then one will feel glad. That's, that's the lift off, that's the, the launching pad. It's not have something, become something to feel good, but free yourself from something. This is very, I think this is very, you know, human. Because you're not setting up a standard to rise to so much as just cut off the shackle. <laughs> and then you will lift and you'll experience that. So gladness and then, you know, rapture, calm, bodily calm, well-being steadied, collected mind through that. One sees things properly as they are, uh, understands the transience, the impermanence, the limitations of sense spheres, becomes disenchanted of that, dispassionate towards it, lets go of it. Uh, then that's the trajectory of, of liberation. another sequence and this is being focused on dana but I'd like you to consider this also as a sequence you can apply to um, morality or sila and there are eight gifts first gift first act of giving having insulted the recipient one gives a gift <laughs> Oh, sorry about that. Here's a bunch of flowers. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is considered kind of low, low merit. <laughs> it's just called defense policy. <laughs> Never mind, you know, we can be, still be friends. 
So rather than I have done wrong, I, you know, please give me some feedback. How can I correct that? I, I try to just pay you off. <laughs> One gives a gift second time. One gives a gift from fear. Yeah. Fear, anxiety, social nervousness. Not so good. One gives a gift thinking, well, he gave it to me. Transaction. And so sometimes people get embarrassed with that. You give something, oh, I haven't got anything to give you back. You don't have to. That's not what it's about. And, you know, in fact, this is a bit of an insult. So, for example, you know, if, if, if in Asia, in Asia, so an Asian country, you know, somebody offers me a, a gift and I have any expression of wanting to give something back, that, that, that's like, that's, that's cheapening. <laughs> because it seems to imply that they gave in order to get something back. And so you just, all you have to do is really learn to receive, take in, and, you know. And so we express anamodana, meaning not thank you, but I'm acknowledging the, the, the moja, the good gladness that's arising, perhaps in yourself, in myself, how wonderful. This is a good action. So it's definitely, an, uh, you know, uh, a pointing to, the, to the, the beautiful quality and acknowledgement. But it's not paying it off. Don't want it paid off. That makes it, that, that sort of lessens it. Fourth kind, when gives a gift thinking, he will give it to me. I <laughs> 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 she'll give me something back. <laughs> also, <laughs> not very good really. Um, one gives a gift thinking, giving is good. This is getting a bit better. We don't quite know why, but we, you know, I suppose it's a good thing to do. That's a bit better. One gives a gift thinking, I cook, these people do not cook. It isn't right that I who cook should not give to those who do not cook. This is a bit better. It's moving up. Hmm? One gives a gift thinking, because I've given this gift, I will gain a good reputation. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, this is a little bit, you know, you're forming good connections. The last kind one gives a gift for the purpose of ornamenting the mind, equipping the mind. Hmm. Interesting. So in another phrase, another reference, uh, it means basically you're just giving the gift with the acknowledgement of what Visakha's pointed to. This is making the mind steady. And, you know, I, I would say that, you know, the last three or four of those are all considered skillful. Uh, you know, even the first one's a bit pathetic, really, but... <laughs> But, but so it's also with sila. You know, we're not doing sila to be, um, you know, morally superior. You know, or we can uh, claim how virtuous we are, or gives us the right to criticise other people for being less than we are, uh, or, or any of this. We're doing it because it gives strength. Um, it both it, it both establishes good connections um, to those. So you know, other people, it gives one a good reputation. This is worldly skill, worldly benefit. But there's also, this has given me a definite lift into the supramundane, making the mind fit to to clear the hindrances. Hmm? This is the book of the 
Eights, Sutta 31 and 32. 32 says a similar thing. One gives a gift from desire. One gives a gift from hatred. One gives a gift from delusion. One gives a gift from fear. One gives a gift thinking this was practiced before. This is an ancient custom. One gives a gift thinking, with a breakup of the body, I'll be reborn in a good destination. One gives a gift thinking, while I'm giving this gift, my mind becomes placid, and elation and joy arise. One gives a gift for the purpose of ornamenting the mind, equipping the mind. So, the last piece I want to do on this particular Point Book of the Nines Sutta twenty. It's another many of these things are progressive. And so somebody's saying, um, alms are given in my family is asking the Buddha. But so all I got will we give is broken rice accompanied by rice gruel, in other words, pretty, pretty poor food. And the Buddha says, well, if one gives alms coarse or excellent, disrespectfully, inconsiderately, does not give with one's hand, gives what will be discarded, gives without a view of future con- consequences, then one doesn't really get good results from this. But if you give food, alms food coarse or excellent, respectfully, considerately given with one's own hand, given what would not be discarded, then one does um, arrive at great fruit. So he definitely makes the material side of it sort of not, not the big deal. And then he goes through a, a little piece of Buddha poetry, or something poetic, in the past, householder. So when you know what the Buddha says in the past, you know what's going to come out. Some amazing, you know, story. There was a Brahmin. He gave great alms offerings. This eighty-four thousand golden bowls, golden bowls filled with silver. Eighty-four thousand silver bowls filled with gold. Eighty-four thousand bronze bowls filled with bullion. Elephants, banners, chariots, yada yada yada. Milk cows, bronze pails and all kinds of stuff, vast array of stuff, so much. But at that time, and he said, I was this person who did this, there was no one worthy of offerings. I had all this amazing stuff to give it, there wasn't anybody worthy people around. So no one purified the offering. Even more fruitful than all this vast wealth offering that was given would be to be one feed one person accomplished in view. <laughs> to feed one person of right view would be better than this 84,000 yada yada yada. So, okay, even more fruitful um, than feeding a hundred persons of right view would be feed a once, one once returner. So it's starting to move up. Even more fruitful than feeding a hundred once-returners and feed one non-returner. Even more fruitful than feeding a hundred non-returners would defeat one arahant. 
even more fruitful than a hundred arahants, one Pacheka Buddha, even more fruitful than a hundred Pacheka Buddhas, we one Tathagata, even more fruitful the Sangha of Bhikkhus, even more fruitful to build a dwelling dedicated to the Sangha, and now it starts to turn. Even more fruitful be for the mind of confidence to go for refuge to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. <laughs> Even more fruitful, the mind of confidence to undertake the five training rules, precepts. Even more fruitful than that, would we develop a mind of loving kindness, even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> Can you do it? So this is beautiful. It's, 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 I mean, it's got some humor in here. <laughs> and he says, um, even more fruitful than that would be to develop the perception of impermanence just for the time of a finger snap. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's nice to... Clearly, this is a uh, kind of fa fable and, uh, and, and a poetic presentation, but you know, the Buddha certainly creating some priorities there. The impermanence, of course, is the you know the stream intra has established that. A couple of more pieces. And so one is a certain encouragement for being somewhat proactive. In what ways is a lay follower virtuous when a lay follower abstains from destruction of life and so forth, the five precepts, is virtuous? In what way is a lay follower practicing for its own welfare but not for the welfare of others? If you don't, it means if you do not encourage others to establish faith, virtue, generosity, association with wise summoners, and so on, then you have not practiced for the welfare of others. So it's an encouragement that definitely encouraged to, to bring it forth. And lastly, the oppositor. This is where the oppositor refers to the full and new moon occasions and Uposita means something like drawing close and these were times in that understanding of the, of the cosmos whereby the moon went through a big change and it was understood these are times when all the you know the, the forces of the cosmos were stirred stirred by this big shift in the, in the moon and they, they were much more accessible so this is the time when you upped your practice in order to get a bit more access to those, that good stuff out there. <laughs> um, so by and large, this would be the time when one took precepts, practiced meditation, listened to a Dhamma talk, and it still is this occasion. And this is the time when people are encouraged to take the eight precepts to um, cultivate renunciation. So even for one night, and so this is also still done, 
Mm. A noble disciple reflects, as long as they live, the arahants, abandon and abstain from destruction of life. With a rod and weapon laid aside, conscientious and kindly they dwell, compassionate towards all beings. I too shall abandon and abstain from the destruction of life. And so they go through the um, precepts, then as long as they live our hands, abandon sexual activity, then I shall also for this night abandon sexual activity, observe celibacy. Abandon false speech, abandon the rest of it, the eight, eat once a day, abstain from dancing, singing, use of high luxurious beds. So in a way what's being encouraged is at that time in all these cosmic, you know, the merit or the goodness in the universe is, is, is becoming more accessible at this moon time because, you know, the cosmos in the, this worldview, it's very much hinged to the immaterial domain and the immaterial and the material domain permeate each other. They're not separate. So this is the time when the, the, these immaterial qualities can have the most benefit at the times of the moons. And ideally, this lifting or reorienting from the sense spheres into these renunciation aspects. So this is something that's encouraged even to the extent of a night being, you know, definitely uh, a manageable um, feature. And in that, you're also aligning and somehow, even for that time, tuning in to the psychic tracks of the Noble Ones, which are held to be permeating this immaterial cosmos. And so you can tune into them, pick them up. And you, then you're on the same track. So you definitely feel enhanced and empowered by that. So as we, do, as we know, this is um, something like that does occur for people. You know, when you, the quality of the, the collective, the crowd, where we can be, you know, you get a whole group of people gathering together to demonstrate for something, to stand for something. You feel empowered and you contribute and your energy runs that way. And this is something that definitely manifests and also manifests for, for evil, mobs, so it can go either way. And that's, I think, the way we see it as accessible. But in this particular worldview, you know, this is this can be done on the immaterial level. And I would suggest that one of the things that we are mystified by and confused by is we tend to assume that consciousness lives inside this body. And I don't think that's the case in this world worldview. This body is receptive to it, but... Mm, you know, when you look at this, how the, the apparent external world is so permeable, I believe that the understanding is, you know, bodies arise within consciousness. Or there's a mutuality of it. 
so that these means these qualities are one of what seems to be internal can definitely move around and affect things for someone who's 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 developed it developed that faculty and again you may notice that to some extent And if you saw the photographs, I think last year there was a a woman, there was some some demonstration, and there was this woman, it was beautiful photographs because she was just standing quite upright, I think with her hands in Anjali, and there was a group of about three or four armed policemen with all the heavy duty stuff on the weapons, and she was just standing there like that. And you could see they were almost pushed back did you see that photograph? Uh, this was quite a stunning photograph because she looked so totally straight, clear, soft strength. You know, and they, it was almost like she could not be touched. Uh, and you see this occasionally in beings who have great purpose, great purity, the quality of their presence is such that it stops people, it checks people, it, it almost acts, has, has a force field effect to it. And, yeah, certainly, you know, I've seen, heard this in, in uh, some of the great um, meditation masters. Mm. And this can have this definitely have this effect, calming, steadying, um, shifting people's negative energies. Hmm. Okay. <laughs>